Hey, Team Helium, I wanted to jump in here just to thank you so much for being a loyal listeners over the first year of the podcast. It's hard for me to believe it, but we're one year in and we're so excited about starting our second year of the podcast because we have over 5,000 downloads of the show and we have you to thank for that. If it's your first time listening to the show, welcome. And I want to tell you that Helium podcast exists to help early career researchers. And this show will always be free to you, Team Helium out there, our our loyal listeners, and we want to keep it free for as long as we're recording podcasts. But we need your help in one of two ways. First, you can leave a review of the show or you can recommend the show to a colleague. We're always looking to expand the audience and we want to help other people find the show so that they know about the great content that's going on here on Helium Podcast. The second and larger way that you can help us is by working with us. So as you may know, Christine and I have a lot of experience in building and launching teams in science and engineering fields both having worked on large National Science Foundation projects in terms of the leadership team. And we know from the research and from our own experience that the first few weeks of launching a project, or the first few months even, are critical to your trajectory and the the results you're going to achieve as a team. And we can help you set a course and keep you on track to your success. If you want to know more about our consulting services for teams, you can email me, matt at teamhelium.co, and we can set up a free consult where we can talk about what we can do for your team as you're launching or as you're building. Now, on with the show. Especially in graduate classes, they're probably they're going to be real content heavy. So you're going real in depth in a subject to become more of a subject expert, or they might be real skill heavy. So you really want to understand the research process or some sort of process that you're going to use in this space. It could, of, of course, be like it's probably going to be a blend of some. But when you're looking at those program outcomes, like if being able to do the research is more important than the knowledge they've gained, you're going to want to structure your class and your activities and your assessment around that. Hey, Team Helium, that was Lisa Wiest, educational consultant at Emory University. She's going to join the show today to walk us through creating or or revamping a course. So if you're charged with creating or revamping a course for next semester or the following semester, you have a few weeks here during the summer to think about this process, this is an episode for you. She's also provided a handout that you can download from our, ep- our episode website at teamhelium.co slash episode 29. So you might want to pause this episode here, go download that handout, which goes through the six steps of course creation. Step one being write your course learning goals. Step two being create a course outline. Step three is develop class learning objectives. Step four is curating content. Step five is designing learning activities. And step six is developing assessments. And Liesl's going to walk me through all these steps during this episode. It's a little bit of a long one, but we think you'll enjoy it, especially if you are interested in developing courses this summer or in the future. Enjoy this one with Liesl Wiest. All right, we're welcoming to the podcast today, Liesl Wiest, who's an educational analyst at Emory University and also a 2003 Notre Dame grad, University of Notre Dame, my first fellow domer on the show. Welcome, Liesl. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the shout out, the Notre Dame shout out. Yeah, I mean, I had to mention it, right? So I I wanted to just jump in real quick here because I think we have a plan for the show, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how you got into this role of educational analyst, because we were talking a little bit before we were recording and saying that this, this is not a common position at, at university. So what got you into this, this space and what really motivates you uh, in your job? Um, Good question. So at Notre Dame, I started as a graphic design major. That's what my degree is in there. And I really like the design process. I really like the critical thinking, problem solving aspect of it. And I was probably better at that part of it than the actual execution, like the drawing part of it. Um, So I really like that big picture thinking. When I started doing 
graphic design jobs, a lot of what I was doing was just staring at a computer and editing things in Photoshop or Illustrator. So uh, as I was working in that space, I, I was also doing some other jobs like substitute teaching. When I first got out of college, I graded some standardized tests, so looking at assessment. So I started seeing education a little bit more and getting interested in that space as well. And I looked for graduate programs that combined sort of a design approach and design thinking with education. And I found the instructional, it might be called the educational technology um, master's degree program at Lehigh University. So that was about a couple years after I finished at Notre Dame. And I loved that. I thought there was a lot of graphic design and web design built into it. And then the education piece, which is just basically the instructional design, instructional technology is helping to improve the education of students, which I love. And I happened to get into higher ed because around 2005, 2006, the field of online education was really taking off. So a lot of the early positions had to do with helping develop online courses, online programs, because faculty, they generally don't get a lot of training in teaching and learning anyway, but in the online space, they really had no frame of reference to even like pretend to know what they were doing. So um, higher ed had a lot of uh, jobs in that area. And so my first job was just online programs at Drexel University. And then um, we moved up to Boston for a few years. My husband and I, he was doing his postdoc, also Notre Dame graduate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I worked at a smaller college there, which was fun because they were also developing some degree completion programs in online, but also we're doing some traditional faculty development. So from there, I just continued in higher ed at different positions. And a lot of them were higher ed or blended, um, I mean, online or blended. But at Emory, I'm really looking more on the faculty development side and the traditional, I guess, traditional courses um, space, which I think is really necessary and underdeveloped. So I'm hoping and with this podcast, hoping to help faculty think about teaching and learning, even like in the classroom using the technology, even if they haven't been assigned an online course or they're often like asked to go through this kind of training. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because in that era, that 2005 era, you've been doing this for over 10 years now. How have you seen (laughs) things develop, right? Because I think at some point everybody was thinking, everything is going to go online. It's all going to be, you know, like the pendulum swung in that direction. And how are, you know, how have things changed? Have you seen things change over the last 10 years in this area? So the technology has definitely gotten a lot more accessible for faculty to do a lot of their own developing. Even actually Zoom, for example, Mm -hmm. has come a long way from like where that started. (laughs) So media development, um, And the LMSs, so like Canvas, Blackboard, Moodle, all of that has really improved in how faculty can set it up easily and then also how students can access it. So I think that coupled with a greater awareness of teaching and learning, that I think big picture is a little slower to develop, but you definitely see institutions thinking about it more as I've been working with more new faculty, they're definitely, I think, more aware of it and aware of their impact on teaching just because you're like slowly seeing that culture shift and what that looks like and um, like accreditation and assessment tracking is becoming more common. I think that space still, I think that assessment is is fun because it gives you feedback and like helps people improve and stuff. But many people see it as like, I don't know, somebody looking over your shoulder. So I think just helping understand why it can be a useful tool and it can be interesting as opposed to something that the burden is is another conversation I often have with yeah, people. Yeah. I, I actually have a question about that, but I'm gonna get I'll get back to that later because I, I wanna jump into what we had talked about we were gonna do with this episode, which is I'm gonna try to put myself in the role of our listeners. So people that are looking for both looking for faculty positions or maybe someone who's just starting out, right? So this is the summer. This is, uh, we're recording this in the summer of 2019. And maybe there's some folks out there that are just now sitting down and saying, I have to create a brand new course 
because I am on this tenure track and I have, I have to write all these proposals, but I also have to create this brand new course because that's part of the reason I was hired into this department. So I am going to be coming to you and saying, well, so let's just start. I'm coming to you and I'm saying, I have to teach a new course, a brand new course. My, my department hired me. Uh, it's an engineering department, and they want me to teach a multidisciplinary course on nanotechnology and water treatment. What? What's what? I'm lost. How do you help me? <laughs> All right. Well, first, thank you for coming in the summer before classes start. <laughs> That's a step one victory right there. Absolutely. Like my number one step, like recommendation, is plan early. Um, so many times people sort of find this out the hard way. Like they think they're too busy now. If you're busy now, you're going to be busier when you're teaching. <laughs> so as much as you can do ahead of time, um, it's huge. The next thing I ask you is, is this a brand new course or is this a course that's been in the curriculum for a while? One way you might, if you're not sure, t- talk to your department about it is if it's an intro level course, there may be resources or learning Outcomes they already have. If it's an upper level course, it might be new. So, where do you sit? Do you know? So it's a curriculum? new it's a new course, and it's for like first year graduate students. Okay, great. So you have a lot of room there to be creative, and flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next thing would be to, if possible, this again is sort of a developing space depending on your program. But if you can look at your program level outcome, so the highest level, like when they graduate from your program with this degree, um, what are some of those competencies? They'll often be pretty um, broad, like be able to research in this space or communicate effectively in this space. So just thinking about that and then content wise, if there's any real specific content, you want to think about how your course is going to help move the graduate students towards those big picture goals. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think so. So how many, how many skill sets do I, do I want to hit all the skill sets or how many skill sets should I be targeting here? Realistically? That's a good question. Um, a lot of times if programs have these developed outcomes, you probably see between four and seven eight to 10 is sort of a max and maybe getting on your higher end. And you probably look for, especially in graduate classes, they're probably, they're going to be real content heavy. So you're going real in depth in a subject to become more of a subject expert, or they might be real skill heavy. So you really want to understand the research process or some sort of process that you're going to use in this space. It could of of course be like, probably going to be a blend of some, but when you're looking at those program outcomes, like if being able to do the research is more important than the knowledge they've gained, Mm -hmm. you're going to want to structure your class and your activities and your assessment around that. If the knowledge is more important than how they present it, like whether it's a paper or podcast or oral presentation, website doesn't matter as much. So just sort of thinking about what it is the students are getting out of the class. So going, going back to these objectives, so it, you're, you said 8 to 10 is the max. Is that 8 to 10 the max for the program overall or for the class itself? For the program overall. Okay. So when you're sort of looking up to the highest level. Okay, got it. So that's um, huge. That's a, that, that does seem like quite a few. To yes, track. yeah. So really like 4 to 6, 4 to 7 is... In the um, class, in the actual... Course that you're teaching, you can say four to four to six or seven. You're saying I'm hitting on these points, lining up with the larger strategic. It's like a strategic plan for the exactly right. This is basically taking you through a planning process. So there is the good news is there's structure. Yeah. Well, hopefully teaching your first course. Um, And if you don't have those program outcomes, which some may not, don't worry about it. That's sort of just like best practices, advice. If your program's gone through that, it's being like at the most intentional level of the course development. So what if, what happens if I, if I'm in a program that my program doesn't have those, how do I uh, start? And if you're brand new, I think the best thing would be just to, you've talked with the other faculty there, talked with the chair or the director of the graduate program, understand what it is the program's trying to do. Um, and the emphasis that, they're stressing, even if it's not formally on paper, just so you sort of have a good sense of what it is they're trying to get the graduate students to be able to do. And the other thing, graduate programs are really, should be really authentic learning spaces. So like 
when you move into a job in this area, what is it that you have to do? So um, thinking about that can help gotcha. with your, because your next step I'm going to tell you is like to, to, figuring out what your course learning goals are, okay. which would be again, sort of in that four to six range in the overarching at the end of this class, students should be able to do this, this, and this. Got it. So I'm going to ask you, do you have, you don't have to think of six, but like six is a lot. one or two for your, uh, the class you're developing. So I want people, uh, when they, when they get out of this class, so this is a multi, so this would be offered to, in my, in my imaginary class will be offered to a multidisciplinary group of engineers. So it's okay. not just engineers in uh, civil engineering or mechanical engineering, but a broad group that can be offered this course. And my, one of my goals, my, one of my objectives would be for all of them to be able to uh, publicly, or I don't know, publicly is not the right word, but like um, communicate effectively about nanotechnology because um, one of the, one of the, the, the reasoning behind that is one of the things about this technology is that the jury is still out in the public eye. Uh, and so having engineers that really understand the fundamentals of the technology is really important for this course. Okay, great. And I like that you used communicate um, using uh, verbs that describe things specifically are great. Have you heard of um, like Bloom's taxonomy? There's several different taxonomies, but this is a pretty standard I've heard of it, but I can't say more than that. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I haven't taught a course in a while, so I'm doing so, my best to pretend here. Yes. So as you're writing your course goals and your then class objectives is are the next piece you would use this, thinking about really specifically what it is that the students can produce, like a skill or um, develop something. So the verbs like communicate was perfect. They can communicate about this. A lot of times, the biggest thing people will do at the highest level, it might be okay-ish. When we get into the learning objectives, we'll want to avoid using the word understand. So saying students can understand nanotechnology. I would then say to you, how do you know they understand? And then you'd be like, well, they're going to talk about it or they can write about it or they can develop something. So really just taking that next step to thinking about what it is that you can demonstrate understanding or knowledge is the language you'll want to use. It's good for faculty. I think it can be a, these next two steps I'll warn you, I think are um, sort of the hardest thing to overcome because a lot of people don't think about it in terms of the objectives, but if you take some time to do it, once they do, I think it's a lot more clear to them what they're trying to accomplish in the course. Mm -hmm. And it's really great for students for transparency to see specifically what it is that they're being asked to do and then what the product is that they're going to be asked to like give at the end. So if it's exams, you might see things like students can recognize or analyze or yeah. um, words like that. So, so uh, Going back here, uh, you know, I've heard from some of my colleagues that it's difficult to balance a course that's both engaging and rigorous at the same time. Engaging and memorable and uh -huh. also rigorous. What what do you say to that? Like, how do I build this in into the, like, uh, maybe this is, maybe I'm skipping ahead uh, on the objectives here, but... I re it's really important to me that this course is fun for the students, but also fun for me because yeah. I, I, I don't want to think of it as work. I want to think of it as I'm excited to go into the next lecture. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So I think at your planning stages where you're saying what the objectives are, you want to talk about, you know, we said the content and skills, but you can also have an objective where it's um, like an attitude change. So you want them to, you can say, that you want them to be excited about it. And that can, and you can put that on the lower level as you go through, but as you do your course planning, you can certainly think about that and think about how you can gauge that or measure that. Um, that's probably something that maybe not everybody, depending on the class will um, come away with, but that's definitely something you can put into the planning. And I, I, I think the, comment that is not as rigorous when you're trying to have fun is probably more just from like a lack of familiarity of with different ways to approach it. Because like when I 
went to school, those classes weren't always that fun. And it sort of was like you go and sit to this lecture and then you're supposed to go do homework. But even just being, and this is getting a little bit ahead, but which we'll get to, but being a little more conscientious about what are you doing in that class time to help facilitate excitement mm-hmm. or practice um, using that differently. And especially because these technology tools are so accessible and readily available, any of that sort of one-to-one communication that might be less exciting. So even just like lecturing or get, giving them information, reading, watching videos, they can do that outside of class. Mm-hmm. So you can use the class time strategically to be more engaging and be have more fun and think of ways to bring that excitement that you have for the material to the students. And I think another thing you've really seen is people that do take the time to develop the course with this, what we're going through basically is a course design, like the course alignment process so that your objectives will be lined up with the next pieces, which we'll talk about are like the class objectives, the content, the activities and the assessment. When students feel like they know where that's going and what to expect of them um, and wrapping in like why they should care about it, even that like will affect their attitude and Mm. they'll have better takeaways with that. So the planning is really helpful. (laughs) Okay. So let's pretend I have my objectives, right? So we uh, have my objectives written down what do I do next? How do I create, maybe, maybe the next thing is the, is the syllabus or is that, am I skipping ahead? So I like to do the syllabus at the end. Um, and that's partly because what we're, I think what people consider the syllabus as like the course design is really, really more of an overview. So Mm -hmm. I think it's helpful you can write it at any point, but it's, that's really just sort of your object, your course objectives will go on it and like high level things, like maybe major assessments, but really that stuff you'll think about as you go through the course design. So more like process. the abstract of the course. Yeah. You think about it kind of yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It yes. Makes sense. Um, and so the next thing that you do is you have your big picture content. So I'd have you take all that content and split it out into like classes. So however long your course is going to run, sometimes they're 10 weeks or sometimes you meet once a week, sometimes you meet like 22 times, you're meeting two or three times a week. So um, this, I'm going to warn you, this step, this outline, and then the next step is like putting the class level objectives, which each each of these items in the outline, this is going to be probably your most time intensive part. So... um, so for you, if you want to think about as we're going through this, like your first or maybe your second class, if the classes are more introductory on the first one. So we'll, from this point forward, we can de- design a class for you. Okay. So uh, it sounds like uh, in an after, maybe, maybe I'm trivializing this, but in an afternoon, I can look at the department level. What do we call those? Uh, educational like the program level yeah. goals. And then I could come up with objectives. I think mm-hmm. that those, or if I didn't have to have a conversation with other faculty members, like if those were well outlined, I could probably come up with that. Yes. How much time do I need to block out for this content step on my calendars? Like, so like how, how long have you seen people typically take to, to develop this, the, the outline that you're talking about? So that's a good question. People often want to know times. Um, I mean, I it's going to vary based on the course, yeah, it's of course. Vary. But, <laughs> um, but I'm just trying to think of I'm I'm putting myself into someone's shoes and saying, yeah. I only have so much time before the semester starts. I also yeah. need to write some research proposals. Yeah. Um, how much time, you know, do I? I mean, maybe so just I a would, ballpark, right? Yeah. So I would give you two choices because I love choice Um, in your course planning. I would either say take like six or eight weeks if you're working way ahead and we can work week to week, like having things done in that timeframe. Or you can sort of do like a crash course and block out like a couple days where like the whole, all you do every day is work on this course. And you could do that, probably get most of it done within, I don't know, three to five days, if that's what you did all the time. Um, Most faculty don't, like you said, they're going to be working on different pieces. So carving out a few hours a week even. So for this outline process um, and then the learning objectives, because you're going to do your outline and then the class learning objectives, which again is just sort of 
being specific about you'll have your content and now we just want to tell the students with this content at the end of class today or the end of this week, you can like talk about it, discuss it, analyze it. So it's again, just being um, specific about that. I would probably in the bigger time frame assign, give them like two weeks to do this. Mm-hmm. So if you work on it a little bit through that time. So it is like maybe a quarter percent of the time that you're working on this. Makes sense. Does that help? Yeah. So like a <laughs> and, quarter, like, and like time 25% like of your time over, like you're either, okay, you're either taking like six to eight weeks and using 25% of your time to develop this, mm-hmm. or you're taking two or three intensive days to really hammer like a solid draft out of this. Yes. And that just depends on your working style, I, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we don't have to go really in depth in the technology side of things. But I would also say what's super useful is as you're, once you've gone through this outline part to use your LMS or Canvas or Blackboard or Moodle and develop a page for each class. Mm -hmm. So on that page, what we'll go through in this next, as we design our one class on that page, we'll be like, for this class, this is your overview. These are your learning objectives. And then whatever content activities and assessment, we line up with that. Okay. So this plan that we're creating for us to help us organize the class, we also want to share it with the students so that they know what's coming, where to go, what to expect. So, um, And it's a super useful tool for that, for everybody. <laughs> so question, when do you start sharing? Um, sharing with the students, they do you, I I mean, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little tangent here, but like, uh, reading, I've, I've got children, (laughs) I've got two, a six and a three year old and, you know, reading parenting stuff. I don't do it all the time, but a lot of advice is just to be like transparent with them. Right. And so, you know, it's not the exact same relationship, but how can you be, you know, you, you want to be transparent with the students, but yes. you obviously don't want to like show them the, you know, halfway built wanna, thing. Right. Right. But at the same time, it's kind of interesting for them, probably at least some of them, right. Who might be interested in going into this, in, yes. in, in, into academia. How is this happening? What, I mean, it's, there's, there's like a curtain that you're kind of, yeah. Drawing. Anyway, there's a, that's the basis for the question. So, um, I think for students, it's really good to give them the content at least a week out. Okay. But what I would say about that is in your course, I know we have no visuals here. Usually I have, <laughs> I will show you this, but it, um, we can so, put them, we'll put it in the show notes yeah. if you want to add a, a visual, okay. we can do that. So when you yeah. set up like your class, um, we use Canvas here, so I'll just say Canvas. Okay. Um, so the very first module, which you'll want to have would be an introductory of the class. So that will have your big picture. Where is this class sitting in your curriculum? It's like whatever degree you can talk about that. Um, Why are we taking it? Why should we care? And this is even where you can start building in um, the excitement and even the language you choose to use and how you're asking them to think about how this relates to them and um, why why it matters. There's um, a marketing and, aspect to this that, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, I mean, it all like, that's what's sort of interesting is like the design and like communication, like all of that wraps into like good education. Mm-hmm. And then like, and then like the memory part goes in, I mean, all that sort of goes together. Um, so, so letting them know the big picture is going, your course goals. And then what I usually would recommend is however you decide to divide up your course. So, some people do it by week. Um, some people might do it by module. So if you have like six topics that kind of go together, you might say, here's module one. And then each of those classes has their own page mm-hmm. where we go into the class information. But that's sort of chunked together. So what I would say is give the students that big information first and then open up the first either a few classes, like maybe four classes or the first module Mm -hmm. so that the students can see if it's like often in times an online class, they do it by week. So they might open up the first two weeks and then you're always um, after that opening up, opening a week up like two weeks ahead or something or opening up. And Mm -hmm. the reason for that is like you said, students 
can see the topics that are coming, but they won't open it up. And if you've done a really good job developing this course site, they might be like completely overwhelmed with all the information that you have there because you'll have your objectives and the content and the assignments. So this way they can see where it's going. They can look ahead a little, but they can't work way ahead because mm-hmm. if they do have that exit, you don't want them working four weeks ahead because first of all, they're probably not doing a good job where they're <laughs> supposed to be and they're not thinking about that. So letting them know where you're going a little bit, I think is good. Or if they do have different time commitments that they do need to work ahead a little, yeah, you can do that. that but makes sense. Yeah. So, so also on the content side, right? I mean, I, I talked about this a little bit with the marketing, right? But you're, people's brains are different than even 2003, right? I mean, I'm talking like an old person now, but <laughs> you know, like the, it's interesting to think about the content development. Like you just, you can have like a traditional lecture style. I still had professors in graduate school that were using transparency, right? Obviously uh, that's yeah. not a thing anymore. Thank <laughs> God. There's like a giant binder and people can't see this, but I was like this thick and he would just flip through it and pick one and throw yeah. it on the thing as fast as he can terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's but not recommended. <laughs> not recommended anymore. Uh, I think he doesn't do it anymore. Thank God. He's still teaching though. So the, but what the point of the question is you're, you're, yes, you, you, the students need to be self-motivated, but you're also teaching to probably someone whose brain is slightly different than, well, it's slightly different than yours, right? It's a generational thing, right? So thinking about how to build the content in there so that it's engaging, right? And maybe, I know you said you didn't want to go too deep on the technology side of things, but I think that might be interesting for the listeners to hear of what you've seen in terms of people breaking the traditional, I mean, we're going a little bit off here, but breaking the traditional models for what course content looks like and how they've been successful in doing that. Yeah. And maybe thinking about that at, during this stage and saying, okay, how can I make sure that I have enough time for this piece? Yes. You're actually right on track because the next piece after the learning objectives is your content delivery. So you know what it is that you want to teach, but then how are you going to give them that information uh-huh. coupled with how are they going to practice that information? So content and learning activities are the next two pieces in our class that we're designing. Great. So content, I would always say, um, find as much variety as you can, as much as possible, be really thoughtful about what it is you really want them to have. And that I think falls into the category of like, don't overassign meetings because <laughs> sometimes people like assign so much either it's like information overload. You're not getting what you need out of it, or they just don't do it because they're not referring back to whatever. And then they, they do nothing. Yeah. So if you're more intentional about like, like what can they, what amount can they actually read? And what mm-hmm. is it that's most important? Even if you're going through the book and saying like this part, really pay attention to these, you can kind of skim. So being that can be helpful in terms of, your reading content. And then, and then also are there other ways to present the information? Mm -hmm. Um, So things like math or chemistry, things that can be really visual calculations, trying to find videos that do that. So there are a lot of great videos that are already available um, for like earlier classes in college. There's a lot of the Khan Academy videos. Yeah. yeah. Um, Graduate level, you might have to be creating your own, but even that, like, like you had asked about the tools, there are a lot of pretty simple tools that you could use to create like a narrated whiteboard or blackboard like in the style of the Khan Academy. Yeah. If you're creating your own resources, it is useful to think to get some quick like best practices tips. So like we had talked a little bit about like audio delivery um, length. So yeah. like we said people don't really want to pay attention a lot longer than seven minutes. So we'll see if people are still, you know, listening. <laughs> Well, I guess with these tools, I mean, do you have tools that, uh, you, like a tool that you would recommend, like that you've had a good experience with and the, let's say the whiteboard videos. So I, the one I, on, for iPads, I like explain everything. It's an app. Um, there are two different versions you can buy of it. One, it can just like, you can just create the whiteboard as an mp4 the other one that's a more expensive version of it i'm just telling 
knew this. So if you go to the store, you might see these yeah. versions. Um, is more for collaboration. So if the students are all building these and you want a platform to share that on, that's why that one's a little bit more expensive. Yeah. Um, but what I like about that particular one is that you keep the MP4 to yourself. Some yeah. other, there are lots of other platforms and some are free and it just depends if you care or not, but a lot of them you have to upload to a shared space. Yeah. So you don't have complete control over it once it's been published. But yeah. I know that, um, like the Khan Academy uses, I think a board that you connect to a computer and can record it. So yeah. there are a lot of different tools. It's like a can can board. I forget what it's called, but yeah, there's a, yeah. there's like, kind of like the tool. Wacom tablets or yeah. yeah. So yeah. So there are different pretty inexpensive ways that you can do that. I'm, I'm getting on a tangent here, but this is fascinating <laughs> to me. Uh, seven minutes you said. So as uh, have you seen ways of people like actually tracking what their students are watching? Like, are they, are they looking and seeing, Oh, well, people are only getting through 3.5 of this seven minute video. I need to <laughs> read. Does do people go down to that kind of analytics level or is that not um, possible yet? You, you probably could. I think that's more like general, like research information mm-hmm. about people consuming the videos. I think in an academic setting, if you keep it engaging, I mean, because you, you can't always give like really in-depth information in seven minutes. Absolutely. I think yeah. don't go over 20 if you need <laughs> to do that. Like if you're in the teens, like you can start chunking the information or make get into episodes. Like I worked with an art history professor once who like was a great lecturer um, and he was able to, there's a lot of like philosophy and like like high level information he was dissecting for them. So it was a good way for them to get that information, but he would take like a two and a half or three hour lecture and break it into three parts. And then within those three parts, break those down into even like really specific subsets, which is an easier way for people to go through that information because they can commit to like 10 minutes now and like move through it at like however fast they want. But, um, cause yeah, not all information can be delivered in seven minutes or 20 minutes. So just thinking about that chunking is like the design, I guess, strategy to address that. (laughs) It's it's definitely interesting because, I mean, we can see, I was just thinking about the podcast, you can actually, we we can track the stats and see how many people are are listening over the course of the episode. And, you know, naturally things, (laughs) well, naturally things drop off, right? It's just like, well, maybe somebody, you know, somebody got home or they their drive ended or whatever. So you see a slow, steady drop off in terms of consumption. And that's, I mean, that's only natural, but it it would be interesting if if it was like steep at some point, then you know, you have a problem. (laughs) So it's like, Oh, something (laughs) is wrong uh, with my design. So in terms of content delivery, I kind of wanted to get back to this. So what is the, what are your thoughts on like someone saying, well, I'm in the classroom and this is the, the sort of the lecture portion. And I want the students to feel like they're getting their money's worth. And, you know, maybe this I'm worried about uh, course reviews, which we'll talk about. I have a question about in a minute. Yeah. But I want to make sure that I'm up there, you know, delivering what needs to be delivered. How have you seen people maybe again, sort of breaking with the traditional model and finding more, maybe not more, but different effective ways to spend time in the classroom and really engage with the students, even even in a graduate course, for example? Yeah. So I feel like there's sort of two parts to the question. Mm -hmm. Um, One being like, this is what the students expect us to do. And this is what I've seen. And then how maybe we would do that differently. So I've definitely heard people say like, they don't want to put their notes up in Canvas because then students won't come to class. Mm-hmm. I think if students can get everything they can out of the notes that you put on Canvas without coming to class, then you're probably not doing a great job anyway. <laughs> you should think about how to use your class time differently yeah. because if they, I mean, there's so much online education stuff. You don't, you don't have to come to class. So how do you think about making that important? Um, And I just gave a talk. You can stop me if this doesn't like resonate with you, but it was about thinking about um, teaching more like coaching. So if you're saying you want students to get their money's worth and the best way to do that is to talk at them, 
if you were in a practice, like a soccer practice, you wouldn't go there and be like, I just spent the whole hour listening to my coach talk to me about soccer. Yeah. You did something. Yeah. So I think what makes it really valuable to students is giving them time to do something and get the feedback. Like, are you doing it right? Are you on the right path? Are there different ways you can approach this problem and make mistakes now without all of a sudden doing it on like a big test? Mm -hmm. So I think that space is what's really, um, often underconsidered when you're teaching a class. So you have the learning objectives. We give them the content, but how we give them the content doesn't have to be a lecture because we have all these tools. Yeah. If it's the one-way communication, I would say give them that give that to them ahead of time. And I have also had the feedback where um, people say students aren't coming prepared to class. But again, like that's sort of up to you. Like if you're using the class time in a way that they had to come prepared or they're not getting anything out of it, like do that and tell them like you, you must come prepared or they're going to suffer the students with them, not literally suffer, but they're not going to be able to, <laughs> to move forward in their content or their classmates aren't going to be able to. Um, and the one other thing I'd say about that is student, cause you asked about course reviews, mm-hmm. students don't always like that yeah. because it puts a lot more burden on them to do something, which maybe they don't want to, maybe they're not used to. Mm-hmm. So I have heard the feedback and faculty don't like this either, that students say, well, I had to do all the work. <laughs> students <laughs> say like, well, yes, you should do all the work. Yeah, maybe. Um, so I think one way to address that is be aware that that might be a, a, um, a perception that students have, but also you can talk about it when classes start. Like this is how you're going to practice the content and, even making the analogy like this is time to practice. The class time is a place where you can try things and get feedback. And like, I know there's a lot of research that's come out about, you know, learning from mistakes. And even in your like memory, long-term retention, when you make a mistake, but then fix it later, that's going to have a longer, um, you have a longer term retention from that than if you got it right the first time. Like if you're driving and you make the right turn the first time, but the next time, like you think you'll do it and you go the wrong way. Yeah. The third time you usually don't forget. <laughs> so you're like, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. So it helps with that um, retention. So I think helping the students think about it differently so they're prepared as well. So it's really I, mean, I like this idea. I sorry, I cut you off. Oh, no. I like this idea of the coaching. Um, that like having it be more about asking them questions and prompting them and really having them because yeah, you're, you're right. You can, I'm breaking this role play thing, but whatever that, <laughs> that you're right in a sense of the, you know, you can deliver the one way content any way you want. You can do it via podcast or whatever, but when you're in the classroom, that's a unique opportunity to have them talk and have them do activities. And actually, mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd heard of this book because you mentioned coaching and it's on my desk. It's, it's, um, oh, the coaching habit. The coaching habit. I oh, love nice. this book. Uh, I'll you write should it totally down. check it out. It's by Michael Bungay Stainer. And, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's very simple, but, uh, it talks about five questions you can ask, uh, for coaching. It's more of a management book, but I'm thinking that there, it could be possibly adopted for like a classroom just thinking about questions you can ask in the classroom anyway yeah side tip yeah and and i think with the coaching analogy um like i because i gave this talk at a conference recently i was like for a second think about your class like just call it practice instead Mm -hmm. of class or Mm -hmm. a lot of times you have it called lecture right Mm-hmm. which is even worse. Yeah. And yeah. That's like, it's like, this is definitely one way. Like, this right. is definitely one way communication. Right. Yeah. So if you, and even if you told the students, like every day this semester, we are having practice like that, I think will help start getting to um, what you're trying to do in that space. And it's going to make it more valuable to them. And if you do have students, you might in a graduate program actually have students coming in with a lot of different backgrounds, but you could use that to your advantage and pair them up together. So if people, if people are moving through the content a lot faster, it still can be beneficial to them to help um, students who like struggling students because they'll continue yeah. to learn it even better. And then they, the struggling students get the extra one-on-one attention, even in bigger, like larger classes, it can be harder, but um, trying to think about ways to facilitate that. 
is helpful. So uh, going back to the role play, did I cover yes. all the steps here? Yes. So in your class, well, we missed the most important oh, one probably, we did? but um, the assessment. assessment, but with the content in your class, um, what ways for your, would you think that you could present your information and what ways this learning activities, the learning activities and assessment really can overlap Mm because you'll have some low stakes assessment, hopefully in your learning activities where your assessment is really just getting feedback about like where you are in the process. So like your high stakes assessment is what people always talk about, but the low stakes can be like the practicing. So So by high stakes, you mean class evaluations, right? Yeah. High stakes might be like exams that are worth a lot of points, like final presentations, research papers. So where the points are coming in your class. And low stakes stuff is how was, what did you think you got out of this? Yeah. Uh, so you know, most, this lecture, not a lecture, but a, you know, what did you get out of this <laughs> video? Practice. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, yeah. So it can be quick questions, actually like multiple choice questions can be a very useful way to, again, like create that longer term retention because you're trying to, um, students have to recall it. So making that, makes it a stronger connection than just rereading. So having that built in, so that can be low stakes, even just classroom discussions where you informally are listening to what they're saying and like, no, that's not quite right. Let's think about this differently. Like that's low stakes assessment. Mm -hmm. So anything basically where students get feedback about their performance, which is why you want to have a lot of that lower level um, feedback going on so that when they get to the exam, they're not surprised. Like, they should know how they're going to do if they've had a lot of this like practice built in. So you're talking about assessing, uh, you know, assessing the students, but also do you see people building in like kind of micro assessments for themselves that they maybe can go back and review at the end of the semester and kind of tweak a class in a positive direction based on the feedback they're getting from the students as the course is going along? Yeah, I think, I think, the assessment, you definitely can get, um, like, do the mid-semester surveys to see if students feel like, especially for attitude assessment, do you, are they engaged with the material? Do they feel like it matters? Are they going somewhere with it? Where, again, it, like, it might be a class that they just have to take, and you're doing your best to help them, yeah. like, through that. But some might be really exciting, so that even student to student, you might see different feedback there. But you can also use that ongoing feedback, that low stakes assessment for yourself as a checkpoint to see how effective you are with um, the teaching of the class. Because if you're having these discussions and they're not saying at all what you're expecting them to say, like you you could take a time time to think about that reflectively yourself. Like why, why aren't they getting this? Is there something I could deliver differently? Are there more resources I could share with them? Did I like overload them on work? So being thoughtful about that, I think is a helpful way throughout the semester to um, adjust. And as you're teaching your class your first time, um, I will say the course, this is a lot going through the course design process. A lot of time you just build like your bottom level structure. So you might not be able to build in all kinds of layers of videos and like extra content mm-hmm. because that does take a lot of time. But after you teach it the first time, you usually will have a bit of a revision. Like you do your best to plan, but then the first, the second time, you usually see the biggest modifications because yeah. some things just might not work and that's okay. And you can have your plan and you can adjust as you go. People often ask that, like, well, if I write it in Canvas, it's like, can I change it? Yeah. Yes, you can change it. Um, that's why you don't open it up ahead of time because yeah. you want you might want to adjust that. So I think being mindful about that. And once you have all this content built the first time, hopefully you'll be able to teach the class again. And all that work you did the first time, you don't have to do again. You're just making modifications, and maybe you have more time to build in like a more interesting in class activity or some more videos mm-hmm. that might help with those um, more difficult subjects. So it's kind of an ongoing process. Yeah. So take home messages. It doesn't have to be the course of your dreams the first time, but right. You, you, and it probably think won't of it be as an iterate, iterative <laughs> process. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So just to review the steps here before I leave your office and go off and become <laughs> a marvelous professor. Yes. We we 
well, maybe we can work from the beginning, right? If we, we needed to look at the department, the department or the, you know, the overall objectives, right? Is that objectives? Am I using the right term there? Yeah. You'll see the words like course learning goals and course objectives used fairly interchangeably. So depending on your institution might use slightly different language, but they're, they're the same. Same thing. (laughs) Then it's the, it's like the questions that I want them to be able to answer at, it's kind of like posed as questions. Right, yeah, or like you might say, by the end of this class, students will be able to communicate effectively about nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. They'll be able to d- analyze something. or So at your course level, they probably will be. And if you do happen to look at that Bloom's taxonomy, it's it's like a growth. So it's like the very bottom level of like recognition, understanding all the way up to like creating and designing. Yeah. So it gives you verbs to help with that. And then there's the content, right? Or did well, I skip a step? First, Sorry. So you'll have your goals. You want to make your outline. Outline. Okay. Yeah, which is the content. So you're outlining all of, basically you're outlining the information, the topics for the class. Mm-hmm. And then you build in the content into the outline. Is the in that, yes. But you, at, when you have your outline, you'll write your class learning objectives. So mm-hmm. if your first week is like introducing, I don't know, nanotechnology mm-hmm. topics. Um, you would be like, by the end of this class, students will be able to discuss this, explain this, like sort of things. Mm-hmm. So that'll be your objectives. So that's kind of the structure. And then, like you said, you'll go into how do I get them this information? That's mm-hmm. going to be your content. Delivery. So that can be readings, videos, websites, okay. journals. And then we had, and then the final thing was assessment, uh, low stakes and high stakes assessment, right? Or did I skip the step again? (laughs) This is why I, this is why my visuals are usually helpful, right? No, that's why Um, I'm trying to review this because there's a lot of steps. So the next step would be um, the learning activities. Okay. So you have your content, and then the learning activities are really the practicing the content. So you've told them something. Now, what do you want them to do with it? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Like then that might also be like homework, things like that. Okay. Um, in our model, we're just hoping our homework is more that one way delivery. And the, so that's where you see that term like flipped classroom coming from, mm-hmm. because instead of telling them stuff in class, you tell them stuff outside of class. Instead of doing your homework outside of class, you're doing it inside of class. Okay. Um, class. And then, like you said, assessment. So <laughs> And that kind of overlaps, like you said, the learning activities, you should have sort of ongoing feedback, so ongoing assessment. And then your bigger assessments should be um, really thinking about like the standards-based assessments, which um, again, can be a whole nother topic. But basically, you just want to make sure that your assessments are tying back up to those it should map back up to those learning objectives that we wrote. So if you said mm-hmm. that they can explain this, that's what you should be asking them to do on that paper down there. You shouldn't be like, I want them to recognize it. And then all of a sudden on the paper or on the final be like, okay, now go analyze it or like do something totally different with it. So if you want them to do those high level things, that's great. Just identify them in your objectives. Like that's what sort of that, this is called like the course alignment. Mm -hmm. So everything should be able to go up and down. And some design people do like the backwards design, like all that is the same thing, like the objectives linked to the content, linked to the activity, linked to the assessment. So that's, yeah, that's confusing. No, it's no, no. I obviously I'm easily confused, but, but no, it makes sense to me. Course learning goals. uh, And then the, the sort of by the end of this class, students will know how to, um, then the outline, then thinking about the content and the delivery of that content. And then yes. that's the, that's something that doesn't have to be perfect when you start right. out, right? You, you can start, you can build in more engaging stuff as you go into to your second version of the class, mm-hmm. then um, learning activities, right? And that, and you talked about the flip classroom and we talked about how to really spend that time in the class, maybe like you're suggesting as coaching, as opposed yes. thinking of it as coaching, as opposed to thinking of it as a lecture. And then the last thing was assessments that connect back both low stakes, high stakes, connecting back to the original course learning goals. So you're ask you're assessing things that they, that you've said that you want them. And if those things don't line up, then you need to reevaluate your learning goals or, 
your assessment. Yeah, exactly. So it's like See, a sandwich. It's like yeah. a, it's like a sandwich, <laughs> and everything in between has to fit yeah. the. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's why I think it's fun because it is more like just analysis and looking for structure and patterns. So nice. It's a lot, but once people do it, I think they like it and can use it and apply it to other courses that they develop. Well, you know, just going from like I'm not teaching a course, but just thinking about this, like, like just having a structure. I mean, it sounds daunting, but it's like okay. This is a skeleton that, I, and this is oftentimes pe- people don't learn this stuff. Right. Right. And, don't, yeah. And the other misconception is that they, sometimes people might think that it's um, telling them what to do, but you're just sort of building a structure where you have so much flexibility. Mm-hmm. And the reason you build it is because it's, it's good for the students. So your outcomes are going to be higher if you're following some kind of process. Makes sense. That's like basic design. <laughs> So, principles. <laughs> uh, you know, being the rookie professor that I am, do you have any um, parting words of advice for me as I start to build um, my course? I think, I mean, I think we covered it. Really, I just say work ahead is one of the like biggest things I can't stress enough and just doesn't happen all that often. Yeah. But um, doing that and knowing that it's a fluid process, it doesn't have to be perfect the first time, you have flexibility. Um, and it's, hopefully it should be kind of fun. <laughs> so, what, you know, if people want to find out more about, you know, maybe some of your lectures on on thinking, well, you've already, you've done one, but maybe you'll be doing more because it sounds like a theme you're you're building on. Where can they go to find out more about you? Um, so I have a little bit on Twitter, mm-hmm. which I just started, but I have like I did a course design made easy hashtag, which actually does take you through all this process and gives you like quick, like bite-sized tips. So cool. that, um, should be helpful. We'll that's link just, to that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. And that's just at my, at my name, Lisa Weist. Um, and, I do have a LinkedIn profile, but that has less like real information. So on Twitter, I have started just trying to put, it's aimed at like at faculty trying to develop courses and general good practices in educational design. So yes. That sounds that sounds excellent. So people, everyone, all of our listeners should follow <laughs> follow right. Liesl on Twitter <laughs> at yeah. Liesl L I E S L W U E S T. That's the it's yes. a little bit hard <laughs> for me to say, but yes, follow her on Twitter for more stuff on this. I think this is a fascinating area, and I'm I'm interested in seeing how this coaching in the classroom thing uh, where it takes you. Obviously, it's a yeah. topic that I'm generally interested in, so uh, I'll be following along. I think we just followed you from the from the Healing Podcast uh, Twitter handle. Yeah. So thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, you knocked it out of the park. You you know, I expected that from a fellow fellow Domer, though. <laughs> right, of course. No, no, thanks. Thanks. I'm always happy to have a space to talk about this because uh, I'm very excited about it. And <laughs> I love the course design process. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Team Helium. My takeaway from that episode is that if you're due to design or redesign a course, you need to get started now download that episode worksheet that Liesl has so kindly provided and start working through some of those steps that she has outlined in this episode to try to improve or make a great course that will save you a lot of time and effort in the long run and make teaching just that much more enjoyable for you. Just a reminder, you can help us out by either reviewing the show, giving us an honest review on whatever podcast app you choose to use, or recommending us to a colleague so you can spread the word about what the great stuff going on here at Helium Podcast. You can also work with us. So if you're building or launching a team in science and engineering and research, you can work with us to really help you set off on the right course. And if you're interested in that, please email me at matt at teamhelium.co and we can get connected. Thanks for listening to episode 29 of Helium Podcast. That episode, as usual, the episode notes are can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 29. And we'll link to some of those resources that Liesl mentioned in this episode about the teaching process. She also has a slide that she's given us that, that we can show 
on the process of creating a brand new course. So if you want to review, you can go to the show notes page to see that. And then some of the other resources she mentioned, we've linked out to those on the episode page. As always, this music, the music for this episode is provided by mblakemusic.com. That's Michael Blake at mblakemusic.com. The episode is edited by Zach Hendren, produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and myself, Matt Hotze. Until next time, we wish you the best in landing, mastering, and leading in your faculty positions.